Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show. And each month we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. This month we have decided to take some time out to pause and reflect over the past years we do each summer. Um, And I'm fortunate this year to have with me in my um, studio here in New Orleans, Louisiana, broadcasting live from uh, the Loyola University Law School. And um, we are, I'm just really excited about the conversation we're gonna have today. I have five educational leaders from all over the country uh, with me today from um, Georgia, from Texas, from Colorado, um, who are just gonna sit and we're gonna Uh, give you the chance to hear what's on the minds and hearts of uh, some of our nation's leaders in uh, public schools. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. I I know that a number of you have mentioned that you are regular listeners um, to the show, and so we're thankful for our um, listeners and want to welcome them back, um, being a part of the family. We have over 5,000 listeners every month, and to our new listeners, we want to welcome you as well. Um, we There's so much that we can talk about uh, that has happened over the last year. Uh, would be remiss not to take a moment and pause um, just to say um, a few words about what has happened recently uh, with a lot of the, the um things that are going on politically in our country and what's going on in, in some of our, our distressed neighborhoods. Um, And so our hearts go out to the families of the police officers that um, lost their lives in their duty and service in Dallas, Texas. Our hearts uh, go out to um, the the many lives, I won't name one or two, but the many lives that are lost every year and even more recently um, um, that uh, have happened um, at the hands of some um, reckless um, officers uh, that certainly don't represent uh, the majority of, of people that are in uh, the ranks of law enforcement. And so we, we pause just a minute just to say um, our, our, our condolences to those families that have lost loved ones. Um, and, and this is not about sides. We're not talking about one side or another, but all lives that have been lost um, are tragic in, in these recent days um, in our country. And one of the most distressing aspects to this um, that has happened and has really come to the fore um, as I have taught some of our promising leaders uh, from the field of education um, is as I'm hearing the amount of distress from our 
students and the amount um, of distress from our young leaders that are worried about the impact that some of these events are going to have on um, their, their schools and the climate and the cultures that emerge in their schools. There have already been reports time and time again over the past year about new evidence of bias and new evidence of, of harsh language being used in our schools um, that seem to be on the uptick. Um, and, and so I just want to talk to my guests here that are here today um, and, and get them first to talk a little bit about how they're feeling and if there's any concern they have about um, going back into their schools. Um, um, starting in August for some, September for others. Um, so let me hear, I know, you know, one of the things that since this um, uh, set of incidents close um, in the last two weeks occurred here in the Southwest, um, we have a guest from Texas and from the Rio Grande Valley. Um, uh, so do you think this is gonna impact you and your schools? Um, uh, this is new, new territory for us. When I look at the overall impact, especially in the Rio Grande Valley, I think it's just bringing to light the real issues that are happening across the country. When we look at the amount of students, the majority of them predominantly being um, Latino, and many of them also coming, having their own particular issues. And so for some of them, many of the people in the region feel kind of this disconnection when we look at Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. And I feel just bringing to the forefront this idea of not that we are undermining the needs of both parties, but that we are listening to the needs of everyone. And when we're saying um, this idea of this colorblindness that most people have as a willingness to shy away from differences amongst groups of people, but it's in those differences that makes us unique and what makes this country great and is what we are founding on. I feel like being able to talk about those in schools and talk about them with students that although we may not be interacting with these particular individuals on a daily basis, they are still human. And so many of them sometimes want to hide behind a computer screen and share different posts and talk about these different things and hashtag um, individuals in the community not really understanding really the perpetuations of particular things that they're moving to the forefront. Um, I really think as we look at these ongoing conversations that it is an ongoing conversation. Um, this is not a one-time sit-down conversation, it's an ongoing dialogue of really meeting the school leaders and the students where they are and really helping them to unpack their cultural and worldviews um, and mindsets of where they're coming from and how this basically is affecting them in the long run. Um, I think a lot of them being Latino, they look at the news media and they wonder how come no one looks like me um, and how come none of the stories of um, Latinos across the country um, dying in particular instances, how come we don't make mass media? Um, and I think that the whole other layer in which talking with the students that um, when we teach them as different schools, I feel in our course as we were talking, one of the many things that I heard resonated is, how do I teach my students this idea of compliancy to be safe, but at the same time really shaking the system from which um, was never meant to really help them. 
I think has been this underlying conversation of how do we begin that conversation when many people want to shy away from that conversation. So one of the things that came up uh, recently um, with a group of teachers over the last couple of weeks that I was talking to was a lot of them were offended by the notion of having to teach children how to be compliant, um, how to teach them to diminish in, in what they, what, the way they viewed it was teaching them how to diminish who they are um, just to stay alive, um, that they should be able to be who they are, of course, with some boundaries, but that the whole idea of teaching compliance at least for this group of teachers, seem to fly in the face of what we, who we want them to be, um, that are confident um, individuals with a voice. Um, Tamaka, what, what do you think? I mean, you, you have been um, a teacher in Atlanta um, with a lot of... Um, uh, historically underserved students uh, that don't have voice. So how do you balance that? How do you teach students about the kind of the boundaries of, of voice with in, in the face of authority figures and maintaining a sense of, of confidence so that they can have a voice. Well, Dr. Perkins, um, I'll speak to it as an educator, but also more personally, having three African-American male sons, I'll speak to it uh, from that aspect as well too. Um, and, it's, it, and I'll start by saying it's a balancing act, it's a tightrope walk, um, because you have to find the balance between empowering them with the skills that will allow them to be alive and, and, and remain alive uh, as they travel and, and, and um, go through the world, um, but at the same time, empowering them and giving them the skills to be leaders and to be outspoken and to not be uh, afraid uh, to stand up for what they believe in. And so it's a delicate um, task of finding the balance, but it just requires con uh, conversations. And so you know, for my sons personally, I, I'm myself, you know, and, and, and their mom, they're, we're able to bombard them with these, but students don't always get that same support. Um, and a lot of times when they lack that support, they get their cues from oftentimes music, um, just the cultural environment that they live in. And this tends to send a message of, um, you know, we're going to fight back and we're not going to just, um, be victims. And so even with students, we have to be very thoughtful about um, bringing them together and, and giving them, again, uh, that tool set that allows them to know. And the biggest thing is to know to how do I identify situations and to distinguish when this is a situation where I need to try to escape with my life. Uh, and here's a situation where I'm able to vocalize what's right, what's wrong, and stand up for my rights. Um, the sad part about the, that is that it's 2016 and we're still having to give uh, children, uh, minority children, these type, this type of skill set. 
um, the same type of skill set or the same conversations that a mother or or let's even say Emmett Till's mom had with her we had with her, her son before he went to uh, visit. He left Chicago and went uh, to visit, and they had that com- she had a conversation with him, and she always talked about saying, when you go down there, it's different, and I need you to be aware of that. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's really peculiar that here in 2016, we're still having those types of conversations with our students and with our children. Um, and so the big picture for me is, how do we begin to transition to um, where the message is to be yourself, always respect authority, but be able to exercise uh, your rights as an American citizen? Sure, sure. And one of the big challenges for me has been, how do we think about this? Um, one way to to do it is to deconstruct it. So start with, here are the outcomes that we have. We have a certain number of, of children that end up uh, in the juvenile justice system. We have students that are dropouts. And I know that in, in your community in Texas, it's a really big problem, large dropout rates. Um, and we have these outcomes that have happened. And we can deconstruct that to try to get at this is how we got there. Or we can look at it kind of prospectively that it's no mystery that when you have students that are disenfranchised in their classrooms and are not encouraged to participate, that they aren't given an opportunity, you talk about the voice and practice and and the messages, but that they are in classrooms being stifled without an opportunity to make mistakes in in expressing voice. That is no no real surprise that when they get out in the real world that that doesn't that isn't going to produce outcomes we want. But my challenge has been what do we put in place? What are the interventions? What are the programs? Not just for children, though, because, see, the conversation to me has often been on one aspect of this is how do we fix those broken children? And without considering that we have also generations of adults that Span in a school system that are in a school and with different ideas than the current generation. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that we're dealing with a group of kids that, for the most part, have entered schools that don't know a world without the internet. And there, that in everything that I'm reading now, that it has, it has in a significant way altered the way they see themselves in relationship to the world, their level of importance, their level of entitlement, and a lot of things. And so we have people who don't have that experience, who are having a difficult time adjusting and doing the things that they need. And so what are we going to do or what do you know that is being done that 
is not just focused on children. So Ben, you're out in Colorado, you have a, a, a school and you're responsible for also adult development in your school. What are you doing personally on a professional level to help your, your teachers also become who they need to be to effectively uh, reach these children? So if you look over the last, you know, half of a half of a century and the evolution of uh, this conversation and what that looks like in education, it's kind of kind of followed a, a bell curve, but with the way the internet has uh, morphed into what it is in the last 20 years, that conversation, well, really in the last 18 months, the conversation has become hypercharged. The conversation has been given public eye like like we've never seen before. Um, and I think that that's a starting point for getting to increased empathy and an increased understanding that the experiences that students have today may not be the same experiences or even the same type of experiences that we as adults had when we were students, um, especially if uh, as adults, we may have come from a different uh, community, different set of circumstances uh, from where those students are. So at the school level and trying to bring adults towards creating better circumstances for students, what that looks like is increased training around uh, intercultural competence. That looks like increased efforts around uh, staffing in a way that, you know, students have mentors that they can identify with and that those mentors that maybe they don't initially identify with have training to understand how to connect with with different types of students. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of a lot of aspects to that question, but I think one of the opportunities presented by the undeniable increased visibility um, is, a, is a step towards building empathy. Uh, so the next question then is, as we're training teachers, how do we be intentional about that? How do we not just know what we want and then assume that it's going to happen? How do we, how, how do we create development in a way that really engages current and upcoming teachers um, around understanding what the needs of students are. Right. And I hear, I hear you loud and clear. I've often talked to superintendents and board members about the danger of making the assumption that people know how to be empathetic, that people know how to be compassionate. Uh, you can't make those assumptions. And having started my career in pre-service teaching education uh, and basically preparing undergraduates to be uh, teachers, uh, what I realized that we, we make some real leaps about what they will come out prepared to do. And I've had a number of people on the show who have talked about over and over again about teacher preparation, and we know that it, it, what it would take is far more than a five-year program 
to give people all the skills that they need to do this job. It's ongoing and it's it's difficult. But what one one aspect to this that I think we have overlooked is what are the specific strategies that help our teachers become more effective in that kind of the the, the compassion and empathy um, components that are really required to do the job. I remember early in my career hearing someone say that um, children don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. And that's real. You know, I think if we think back to our early childhood experiences and we all can reflect and know of a teacher, chances are there was someone that we said that if we had a favorite teacher or a teacher that we liked more than others, it was probably because that teacher displayed a certain level of care that was important to us. Um, and and but it's not it's not a good assumption. So Todd, you um, also you, you're um, as close to um, this as anyone else. Uh, being a teacher um, on a day-to-day -day basis, what are you seeing uh, our students struggle with in terms of their relationships with teachers? Yeah, um, it's interesting when you brought that up, too. I thought about that teacher in my life uh, who made that difference, and that's why I became a teacher, and it wasn't until college. Uh, and I grew up in a very um, rural town in Georgia that didn't have a lot of cultural diversity. Um, and so, I, you know, it makes me reflect on what about we had probably my elementary school, we probably had 10 black students and that was it uh, out of, you know, um, probably a hundred kids, 120 kids. Um, and then in my high school, it was kind of the same situation and not one of them was African-American. We didn't have any African-American teachers growing up. And so, you know, I look back and see about what kind of difference a teacher could have made in their lives because Thanks to Facebook, kind of see where everybody is coming out. Um, working in, in the classrooms on a daily basis, especially uh, in my uh, current role, it's been really interesting to see the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of our teachers. Because luckily I work in a uh, school system that actually has a very diverse um, teacher population. Um, and they're able to pull in all their different cultural and uh, uh, differences in the classroom and in their, in their instruction. And, and do you think we're, we're at a point where just thinking about your experiences in your school, though, um, where teacher, the teacher preparation component is doing a better job, would you say, than when you came through? Uh, as you see new teachers coming, um, how, are, how are they dealing with um, you know, being in diverse situations? But but with the caring and empathy? I think empathy is a huge key, and I don't think that actually plays as much of a role as, in our teacher professional development as it should. Um, I think that's something that teachers struggle with because, again, we're products of, what, of the process that we came through. And so a lot of these teachers themselves weren't taught how to be empathetic in these situations. Uh, and so it's something that actually they have to come out of themselves to actually kind of understand. Um, and, you know, I think empathy, especially um, understanding where somebody is, but not being able to go through that situation, I think has always been the hardest thing for me. Um, and especially growing up, uh, you know, for 
30 some odd years and not being able to step into the shoes of, you know, especially in this past, past week. I think it's really hard for some of our teachers that have never experienced that to, to, to be em truly empathetic. And I think that takes a lot of open discussion, open dialogue. And I feel like the, that school districts need to make more of an effort to have those dialogues, to have the time to have those dialogues amongst the staff itself. Um, because that would help prepare the, the teachers to then go into the classrooms and actually display and be that example of true empathy. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the, the things that came to mind when you said that um, was, you know, we have teachers that are listening and who will listen later who are, are going to really struggle with how do you deal with the questions that kids are going to have that didn't have anyone to talk to about this all summer? The president has called and asked that we continue the dialogue. The, um, the Speaker of the House also in his interview with CNN said the same thing, that we need to have, we need to have this conversation, this national conversation. And I don't think they're talking about one conversation. I think they're saying we need, the discourse needs to begin and continue. Hector, how do you plan to deal with students that are going to want to talk about this? Now, you got a lot of stuff you're going to have to accomplish this year, obviously, <laughs> in your class, but they're going to have a lot of questions, and what do we do, and how do we, the, 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 the fear, the concern, the frustration, their own experiences. How do you, have you thought about it? How do you plan to deal with it? And this has been an ongoing question that I've reflected on from different perspectives. So I've looked at it at how would I do this as a classroom teacher and as I transition into an administrative role leading teachers in this. Um, and so I think it's going kind of what you were um, speaking about, Todd. I think it's one, when we look at adult development, that critical reflection piece. I think a lot of the times when we look at higher education and how they're preparing our teachers, it's more of this is what you're going to do to kids, not and for kids, not with kids. And so I think when we look at our school to prison pipeline and our discipline as one of like the major things, um, and we look at switching it from the student created something and did something so they should receive a consequence for that. And I think we've gotten this notion, especially in teachers, that a consequence should be a punitive thing not that we should restore the bond that was broken to then bring that child back to peace. When we look at restorative justice and different restorative practices and really changing the entire mindset from the principal down. And really when we look at many of the issues that teachers would face in the classroom, that sometimes the teacher is the anger trigger to these mm -hmm. particular incidences that are happening in the classroom. And so we expect kids at an age of 13, 14, older, sometimes younger, to be able to regulate their emotions when we have adults that are standing in front of them that are unable to regulate their emotions and really sometimes move these kids up the anger escalator until they explode in the classroom. And so when it looks like <clears throat> in terms of the conversation, it's really not just listening to the kid to solve an issue and to give them an answer, but it's really taking the time and setting aside the space to listen to their feelings and to their needs. And that may be me just being there listening and asking probing questions for me to gain a better understanding of where they're coming from. And that may be me putting myself in that perspective because I cannot 
empathize with someone if I can never put myself in that perspective and begin to understand where that person is coming from. Um, and I remember hearing from one of my teachers, she would always tell us, she was like, I'm not going to feel sympathy for you because that's feeling pity. I'm going to feel empathy mm -hmm. for you because I'm going to work to understand where you're coming from. And I think when we look at a lot of professional development across the country, we were so focused on getting kids prepared for a state test that we forget that they actually have a voice mm -hmm. and they actually have um, feelings in different positions. Um, especially when I look at like no excuse charter schools that kids who come in um, and this may be a kid coming into the fourth grade who has maybe had a bad record for the last three years and is trying over the summer to reinvent themselves and they come in and then these preconceived notions and assumptions that we already place onto kids not assuming the best and not seeking to understand. And I feel like if we really want um, this sustained dialogue to be able to happen in our classes one needs to be something that is an effort coming from the administration and from the teachers that are really wanting to make this space and understanding that if I want to teach them the curriculum of a particular content, then I need to be able to hear my students' needs when other things come up. And I feel like a lot of the times when we ask teachers where you teach, they say like, I teach math, I teach science. When really they should be saying like, I teach students, I teach children. Um, and I feel like that mindset shift is where if we really wanted to start listening and having these critical conversations, that suspending the judgment and dropping that advocacy piece to just listen and listen to their needs and ask to understand. And I feel like a lot of the times that's where these walls are built up because we have teachers who don't even understand the cultural contexts and the worldviews that are impacting their decisions and their underlying assumptions when they do these particular things. So how can I move this student to get into a better place if the teacher themselves doesn't even realize these underlying assumptions that they are bringing to the table. Sure, sure. I'm glad you pointed out the difference between empathy and sympathy as well, because they are two very different things, and, and empathy is what we need. And you talked about the teacher being the trigger. I just want to share this story before we close. Yeah, living in Atlanta, I follow the Atlanta News, and yesterday one of the headline stories was um, uh, former ambassador and former mayor of Atlanta, Andrew Young, uh, made a comment and he was thanking the police because the police did a fairly decent job in Atlanta of monitoring the protests and such. But, you know, he's in, in saying that he said to the police, you know, I understand that uh, these kids out here can be unlovable little brats sometimes. And um, it just resonated across the whole community and he got a lot of pushback and he's well respected, but the youth, uh, revolted against that, and he and it really hit home because he said his granddaughter called him and said, "You should be ashamed, and you should know better." Um, and I think he meant it with, you know, I understood what he was saying, but it's that same type of empathy and same type of understanding. We have to start to start a dialogue with the kids, bridge the gap between the older and the younger generations, um, start to see what some of the viewpoints are. And bridge the gap. Well, you, I, I was going to ask you to jump in to say a few words. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, we're part of, you're part of a conversation um, today that is really kind of a year in the review, but we have uh, four uh, leaders in education from all over the country joining us. Um, just want to extend the, the invitation. We're going for an hour today and uh, want to extend the invitation to you. If you want to call in, please do so at 
657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. So we're having a great conversation about um, what is happening currently in um, education in our United States. And so, Demarcus, you, you, you talked about the comment that uh, Ambassador Young made um, that, you know, that, that almost feels like there was a poor choice in words. Mm -hmm. I have often said to groups of teachers that are starting out that what you have to understand that when we, when we make the comment that we want to have students that are uh, independent thinkers or strategic thinkers, or, and we want them to have voice, and, and we want them to, to be able to act and be self-actualized and all of these wonderful, great things. One, I remind us that they are uh, children with, and they become better at that with experience and that they will hopefully get better at it having failed at it a few times and um, and their language will get better, what have you, that they are often difficult to deal with. Absolutely. And the, because the challenge is that we are trying to give them voice. And so there are a lot of mistakes that are made. And I, I, I recall, I was so impressed. I remember once, I was visiting a school in the Bronx, in South Bronx, and it was a high school, and a, a student was being very, very disrespectful to a woman teacher, and he was using profanity, and, and he was a high school student. Um, certainly, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe some of the things that he was saying. She looked at him and told, and, and basically said, okay, I understand, sit down, still. And he was trying his best to provoke her. And he said, she just told him, you're still not leaving. Um, you're going to sit here and you're going to learn something. You don't know it. You don't know that you need this, but I know, because I'm the adult in this room and I get that you're a child. But so that's why I'm going to say, it doesn't matter what you say here today, you're still going to sit here. And I remember just being awestruck at the level of patience, but compassion that was being displayed because it wasn't about her. She was like, you can say whatever you want to me, it's not going to bother me, but I love you enough to not let you, you don't know that what you're throwing away in terms of an education is valuable. I'm not even going to let you do that. And so, but there are some people that as they are trying to give students voice that they want, it's not a switch that you turn on and off. And unfortunately, it's painful to watch them develop because they make mistakes. Here's the point to have, to have voice. This is when you do it and this is when you don't. It's not a switch that teachers have to understand that. It's not a switch to turn on and off for, um, for a student. And, and so to, to the comment that I, I, I think there are probably a lot of other ways that it probably could have been said, but I, I certainly understand that it's not always pretty 
to deal with children developing. And certainly in a world now that has far more distractions than we've ever encountered, that children have distractions on their telephones, on these on the smartphones, and it doesn't mean that you should ban the cell phones and all of that. They are distractions that they have to learn to manage. And the best way to do it is not just say, we're going to take away your phones until, as an example, until you're 18 years old and you make the decision, and then they've had no practical experience of knowing when and where and how it is appropriate to use it. I mean, those are, and, and it's just kind of a long-winded way of saying it's not always pretty. It's not always easy, but we have to also do the kind of development work with our teachers to help them understand human development as well. Um, I guess, you know, the, the, the other part to this that we started on was actually another show we had, kind of a combination between two shows, was that there was one that was called The Benefits of Culturally and Racially Diverse Classrooms, but we also talked in, a, in a, another show about the congruence of race between teacher and student. Um, having teachers that reflect they're the race of the students, at least some examples. Now, I, I teach at the graduate school, and I still get students at the graduate level who come to me and say, you know, less uh, often than in my earlier years, but I have teach students at the graduate school level say, would you believe that you're the first African-American teacher I've ever had? So they've gone all the way through undergrad, and for some, some master's degrees, some law school degrees, and they come to me at the doctoral level or otherwise and say, I've never had an African-American professor before or teacher. Um, what, do you, what do we do about bringing um, more African-American and Hispanic teachers to be in these schools where we have students that are of their their race um, but with their similar experiences how do we what, how do we get them in um, what has been your experience with that uh, strategies that you've used to bring bring um, black and Hispanics in that, that's a that's a complicated question and there's a couple things that go into play there and I think it all goes back to the idea of equity. So at the, at the very ground level, what we're talking about is um, culture and the role that that plays in instruction and in pedagogy. And so that conversation includes things like your question. How do we get, um, how do we change the demographic of the teaching force in the United States? And from two angles, part of that is how do we recruit? And the other part of that is how do we ensure equitable hiring practices? Um, I don't think that we can look at one without looking at the other and, and come to the right solution. But the third part of that is um, because we don't live in a perfect society and we don't live in a perfect world, in situations where that's, that's not the case, how do, we give, uh, how do we provide experiences for teachers to understand how to be effective across cultures. 
I think that that's another piece that's missing. And so um, I, I'm afraid I don't have great answers for at least one of those questions. And I've, I'm still seeking somebody who does. Um, I, in many circumstances, have seen repeated failed efforts to increase, um, to further align the demographics of faculty with the demographics of students. One thing that I have seen some amount of success with in looking at hiring committees is making sure that there are um, people on the hiring committee that reflect the demographics of the students. And there has been some research to indicate that that has a positive impact on diversity in faculty. Outside of that, I've, I've seen a lot of a lot of talk and a lot of intention and not not a lot of really successful nut and bolt kind of strategies. Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's such a complex problem. And so we got to look at it. It's a, it's a system and we got to look at the different layers. Even going back to and and Dr. Perkins, you went to HBCU when education programs started being removed from uh, historically black colleges and universities. And so um, we've got to look at the big picture and look at it. Is the workforce uh, been decreased? And so do we have teachers coming out as much as we used to? It used to be a very honored profession in the community. Um, and now we've seen that dwindle for business programs and other mm -hmm. programs. And so we have to think about how do we start on the front end and get more teachers young potential teachers in the pipeline so that we can have candidates that are suited uh, to be hired as well, too. Well, well you, you just said something that is critically important to the conversation about that, you know, historically black colleges played a major role in supplying African-American teachers to the pipeline. And more and more, they're dropping those programs. Um, I had the opportunity about three years ago, um, I was talking to one of my colleagues who is the president of a private um, HBCU, and I, they, they stopped their teacher preparation program, and it, they stopped it in, uh, in one place. Um, and then he moved to another place and they stopped it there. And I said, why, why are you discontinuing the teacher programs? He said, because parents don't want their kids to major in education. And I looked at him and he said, they are paying a lot of money to send their kids here. So $30,000, $40,000 a year. They are not expecting their kids to come out of school. And if you look at the pay in some places, I mean, we know, and I, I, I have uh, a niece who came right here to uh, New Orleans. It was a kindergarten teacher, first year, um, graduated with honors from University of Illinois, um, a, a scholar, um, um, what they call a golden apple scholar, you name it, had all kinds of accolades as a pre-service teacher did well and came to Louisiana, first year teacher made $31,000 a year. And, and so you, you know, you have parents that are 
are investing far more than that in you know per year to send their kids to school. But his his response was, parents don't want their kids to go into education for this kind of this kind of money, and they're not getting a good return on the investment. Um, we can we can sit and we can talk a lot. It's just like the the um, police chief in Dallas said um, the, uh, yesterday that there are people who are putting their lives on the line for $40,000 a year. Likewise, in education, you have people who are dedicating their lives um, for just $40,000 a year on average, and in some cases a little more. But there's not a clear alignment between the importance of education, our education system in this country and the way we treat the people who we're trying to get in. What are you guys hearing about um, people that may want to go into education? Are they being discouraged by the pay? Are they being discouraged by the working conditions, the expectations, uh, overwhelming? What, what are you hearing about who's deciding to go? And I know a number of you know people that, that went in and then got out. I've known people who changed careers to go into education and go, oh, I didn't know what I was getting into, and then they got out. But what are you experiencing around that, people who are making decisions to go into education right now? So one thing I'll add to what we're talking about, right here in New Orleans, within the last couple of weeks, I had a conversation with a a professor here at, at one of the HBCUs, and what I learned from that conversation was that this year, there have been less than 10 uh, undergraduates who have completed an education. That's how many, sorry, in the HBCUs right here in the city. And when you think about the number of, of job openings and the number of teaching positions that need to be filled, you know that that, that doesn't even come close. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the narrative that is told is exactly what, what you said. The cost of an undergraduate education today is comparatively more than it's ever been in the lifetimes of most people who are currently living. Um, and so um, in addition to, to that concern, the job of teaching arguably is more difficult than it's ever been in the lifetimes of um, anyone, any, anyone currently living. When, when you think about um, When you think about um, how education has changed, when you think about how the role of education has has deepened from what public education was initially envisioned as, right? When public education started, the idea was train people to work in factories and filter out those who get to be the bosses. That, that's the basic idea of the structure that we're in today. Well, what education has become in the you know, century or so, century and a few decades since that time, is um, a, a group of adults trying to prepare young people to solve problems that we don't understand and that may not currently exist. That's a hard job. Um, that's a hard job for someone who is gifted and experienced and cares and, and knows what they're doing. Um, and, so part of the narrative is 
it's become uh, more challenging and, and the cost of entry has gone up. I mean, this is something very personal for, for me too. Uh, I, I was thinking about the pipeline, about you know how, how many of these teachers, especially I just have a 10 here in New Orleans, and how many teachers that I've known personally just to leave New Orleans, to leave, you know, leave the profession here. Um, I'm moving to Hong Kong because they're paying me more. And, and that's ultimately this year. Uh, I had eight, one, one child this year, and I'm have another child next year. And the state of the educational system right now is I cannot afford for my wife to stay at home and raise our children. Or if I could, I could not afford to stay at home, if my wife wanted to continue to work, it just wouldn't be attainable living the lifestyle that we really would want to. And so um, if I can actually, yeah, so I see a lot of, and I've actually had a lot of teachers come up to me and ask me why I'm leaving. And it's, you know, I've, I put in about 10 years and I really enjoyed it, but the altruistic part of it to me is kind of wane. So two things kind of um, going back in terms of the putting students, putting teachers in front of students who are from their cultural background. I mean, I just even look at like um, even gender and particular things. And one of the, I was sitting on a panel last year and um, there's a nonprofit going around that was Million, Million Women's March, and their big thing was getting women CEOs from these different companies <clears throat> to kind of be, their idea was sponsorship. And so not sponsorship in terms of monetary value, but having a person in the room that was going to be willing to sponsor them or push them as a mentor into these particular positions. So when we look at discrepancies among uh, the percentage of people that we're hiring or the people that are in the building, who's the people that are in the room making the hiring and who's pushing for these particular people. And so it's hard when you have a group of people that are not even within the building to then sponsor for more people who look like them in the building. Uh, and then secondly, like just being in the classroom and talking with my students about particular things, um, as I began to tell them my story and tell them, oh, I had the chance to go to medical school and when I did Teach for America decided to stay in the classroom, they look at me like, if I must have been crazy, sir, what were you like doing that made you make this decision? And so I think for them, just in a cultural context, like even me growing up in a family where for them it was, you're going to be either a doctor or a lawyer. And we look now and we look at just a percentage of lawyers that are coming out with a degree but can't find a job. So is that even a viable field of study in which we want to pump our kids into when you're paying all this thousands of dollars into three years of graduate school to get a degree and then can't find a job. Um, and so as I look at the changing landscape of what we're trying to prepare students for, one of the big things that we look at, like Obama's push for 100K and 10 to get even more STEM teachers into the classroom. And I think looking at this, that like even that teaching can be a STEM career and how we begin to change the narrative and the value of what we place on them. We expect teachers to do so much, yet we're in a society that undervalues them in comparison to these other countries. And so as we look at like these differences and how we want to be national competitors with these other countries, the we only look at test scores that these other countries are producing, but we don't look at the cultural context and value in which these countries are placing on their teachers. Um, when we look at certain requirements and the differences that other countries have put into place in order to provide um, 
this higher worth, not just in monetary value, but just in how the culture respects them of the entire country and what they value that this person is going to be able to do. And if we want to prepare this country for where we look in the next hundred years, who are the people that are going to prepare this country is going to be the people who are standing in front of them each and every day, preparing the next presidents, the next business owners. Um, and I think this very capitalistic idea where we focus on money um, and just different systems that don't allow, we can look at differences in terms of revenue, tax base in which different schools are getting in different, different things. But just at the end of the day, I think it's just, placing all of it just on a teacher kind of almost as a scapegoat to these larger systemic problems um, that are really pushing kids out of the field um, mm -hmm. and undervaluing the worth of a particular degree um, in this education and dedicating their lives to doing what it is that they do. Um, and we look at these people who have, as we talked about earlier, this high empathetic value. And most teachers who are in the classroom have high empathy and because of their high empathy are willing to sacrifice other things um, for the benefit of other people. And so that's all I'll say on that one. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's an excellent segue that, you know, we've, the time has really flown by and we have a few more minutes before we close out. But I mentioned before we got started that I was really, and I am, discouraged by the fact that there has been little to no discourse about education in the current political season. Uh, it's hard not to hear any, uh, anyone talking about what is essentially the future of the country um, and, and in a real way uh, that we have also become fear mongers in the worst way of, of worrying about um, you know, our neighbors and being concerned about people who have, who have been our neighbors um, and, and wanting to and make investments in, in things that are, are shutters to the rest of the world. Um, but as we, as we think about how we move forward in this political season, and no one is talking about education. What would you throw into the, you know, the, the the stirring pot, if you will? What would you what would you throw out there as something that we need to talk about? I mean, some of the obvious components. What we talked about the conversation, the racial discourse, um, and and about the the health of our nation in that regard. But what else do we need to talk about? that would be significant if you had a chance to sit privately with the two um, pre presidential candidates that have emerged, um, what would you say? Here's what I want you to talk about. What I would say is this. I would say one of the things that uh, has contributed to our status as a economic and military powerhouse in the world is how we once approached the idea of innovation and how, you know, think about in the 60s. Kennedy said, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. And people said, you're crazy. And what happened? We put resources behind it and it happened. Fast forward almost 50 years later and we have elected officials 
holding snowballs and saying, look, I have a snowball. Global warming is not real. For us to maintain our competitive edge as a society, um, we need to continually innovate. We can't rest on our laurels and we can't keep doing what we've been doing. And that stems from education. One of the reasons that we were able to achieve that goal and go to the moon was because we put some resources behind it. We put some resources behind preparing, um, you know, in that case, scientists and, and dreamers to figure out how to do something that hadn't been done. Um, how do we do that today? Where does that, how does that become part of the conversation? That's what I would say to any uh political candidate running for uh, office of importance is where, where is that in, in the discussion? And what are your plans for how we stay at the forefront? And, and um, last summer I had the opportunity to talk to the deputy secretary of education. And one of the bigger things that we were talking about is um, that STEM innovation and creativity of how we're bringing that. Um, one of the things he was talking about was like P-Tech campuses in New York that are um, pre-K uh, 14 schools um, with IBM and their partnerships. Um, and one of the other companies I was talking with was this Amgen and different corporations. <clears throat> and so the big push that I gave is these large corporations keep pushing out all of these statistics that the workforce is not prepared to properly work for them, but are not putting any money behind that to prepare the generation that's going to fill those spots. So when I look at <clears throat> what we need to be doing, I guess one of the biggest things I would look at is not just leveraging what we have currently, but in terms of resources, if you have these large companies and organizations and corporations around the country, what are they doing to help um, public school education in terms of producing the type of workers and innovator thinkers that they're going to need to fill the spot? So you would press them to encourage corporations to get involved with public education. Sure, sure. Tamarka? Um, I don't know where I would start, uh, but I would kind of sound the alarm and say uh, that things are bad and that we've got to find ways to uh, understand that uh, education is the key. And as, as cliche as it sounds, until the federal government aligns with the state, um, and starts to restructure, re rebuild, and find innovative ways to refund schools, public schools, and, and all schools, um, that we're going to continue to see problems. And I think a lot of this stopped as many things were stifled during the Obama administration as far as just impeded and the House not moving anything and Congress not moving on anything, period. Um, so I think there was a lot of vision that he had going in, but realized that the brakes were on full effect um, during both of his terms. And so um, I hope that the new president um, will be able to have more room to grow and, and, and develop uh, the Department of Education to empower things on a state level as well and to uh, realize that uh, it is a sense of urgency and that kids are struggling and, and they need it. Sir? Yeah, I think it, it all goes back to where the money goes. I mean, I, we need to make sure that we get the just working in classrooms that have had 30 plus students, especially as a middle school teacher. I mean, and going back to a middle schooler is going to be a middle schooler. 
you know, there's certain difficulties that they're just going through that we just need to be there for them. And it's hard to be there for, uh, I taught over 140 students one year. Um, and so to be there for 140 students, you know, on a daily basis, is just tough for anybody. Um, and so we really need to make sure that we bring the money back locally, lower those classroom sizes. And I think the, 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 if we can have the biggest effect, it's going to be at the smallest level. That's going to be in the individual schools and the individual districts and those individual classrooms. Um, and so whatever we can do to kind of reverse this top down, I know, especially in the state of Georgia, we've had a lot of issues with, uh, with the state of education right now. So hopefully we'll get some changes with this new election. I think so. Yeah. Well, for me, I think um, as a close out here, uh, I, I think I would encourage them to go back and increase our uh, investment in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. I think we, we have let it slip too long, and it's not to say STEM isn't important or dealing with issues of teacher pay are not important. Those are all very important issues. Um, so for me, I think, you know, one one even though that was my, my question, one approach is not going to fix it. Um, I think that one of the places that we have slipped the most is our emphasis on making sure that more children have a quality early childhood experience that actually prepares them and gets them ready um, to engage in our, um, our public school curriculum. Uh, long term um, and to have successful careers. We study after study teaches us that um, that's your best investment. And actually, um, three out of five of the top high school uh, dropout prevention programs are, in fact, early childhood programs. And so it speaks for itself in terms of its long term uh, effects. So, um, hey, we have to do this again sometime. I mean, it was. You guys made it easy for me today um, that uh, I, I'm normally talking to one person, but it's a great conversation. I appreciate you um, dedicating your time, and I'm sure I, um, there are people out there that are really going to have a lot of good things to say um, about our conversation. Um, and so we have uh, much work to do, uh, but I'm encouraged by that. So until next time, uh, to my audience and to the family that is out there, go well, stay well.